The Java Council podcast is sponsored by Zero Turnaround, creators of revolutionary tools JRebel and XRebel. For free trials, visit zeroturnaround.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 20th edition or 20th episode of the uh, Java Council, a podcast run by the Virtual Jug. And uh, joining me here uh, live on the podcast, we have uh, Manny Sarkar, developer of fun things called software. Hey, Manny. Hello, how's it going? All good, thank you. We have uh, Martin Verberg as well, CEO at JClarity and the Diabolical Developer. Hey, Martin. Hey, good afternoon. And uh, myself, Simon Maple, I'm a developer advocate at uh, Zero Turnaround. So um, this time around, uh, what we actually did with, uh, since we've created our Slack group, and for those of you who uh, aren't on our Slack group and want to be on our Slack group, you're welcome to go to thevirtualjog.com. There's a link just below our live session, and you can grab, uh, you can click on that and join our Slack group there. Um, on our Slack group, we have a Java Council podcast channel. And uh, we asked just recently uh, if people could offer topics that they'd like us to talk about. And we have a couple of very interesting topics. Um, actually, <laughs> one of the things that we've tried to not stay away from but stop repeating is maybe a lot of things about Java 9. But it looks like we've had a lot of requests on Java 9. So we will be talking about that today. Um, the first one is a topic around HTTP codes. So Alex Morales asks, uh, have you read about HTTP code 103? He was wondering about use cases for this um, when designing services. So, um, any any feedback on that? Is that a, is that a useful HTTP code? When would you use that? I, I think it's reasonably useful. Um, it, it's basically designed for preloading, um, dare I say, it, static resources or, or resources that the, the server or service thinks that the client will highly likely need. Um, so that would probably include things like CSS, any images, and you know, perhaps any common JavaScript. Um, and, and this stuff can all be sent um, to the browser and, and set up in the browser before the actual response from the server. Let, let's say you're doing some more heavyweight processing of, of a piece of Java work or, or some compute or some retrieval of some data from a data store. Um, uh, kind of uh, instead of stacking all of these requests one after the other, you're you're actually effectively sort of doing them almost in parallel, as it were. So uh, it can mean, and I think it could mean for certain types of requests that the the overall response time for that first response in particular uh, could be a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So it's almost it's effects of uh, well, it's not really caching so much, but it's it's prefetching, I guess, things that the client might need, right? So, so how do we understand 103? So when you get a 103 on a, on a HTTP call, what does it mean? It means your prefetched headers have failed or your prefetched links are successful or what, what does that 103 meaning? Um, I, I think it's saying to the client, go get these uh, resource, go get these resource, these quick static resources whilst the main request is still processing. Ah, uh, okay. So, so right. if, if you get a request, you'll get you'll, you'll get a, a one hundred three back to say you should be prefetching these while your response is uh, while your response is coming, and then the client can then doesn't have to, but of course it could um, prefetch those other resources so that when the main response comes back, uh, it already has everything it needs to to display that response. That's right. Okay, so it doesn't get a four or four or four hundred or two hundred 
it gets a 103 first and then when does the when does the next proper one come so that's not not clear and when do you get a 200 uh, and a 400 or 404 i think i'll, I'll put a link to the uh ietf um early draft in the show notes and i'm actually reading the slash dot uh and it doesn't say it's really talking about the 103 it doesn't talk about the workflow you know so yeah, it's effectively, it looks like to me that, that the 103 will, can optionally get processed first and then the client should still wait for the usual 200 or 300 or 400 or 500 or whatever the main response uh, should be. Um, so what would the use case for this be then when, uh, is, this, is this for when you have a request which is going to obviously have uh, further requests on a number of different resources? and you want it to go you want that initial request to be faster so uh so you, you push back these 103s to to, to prefetch these other resources um obviously i'd say probably uh <laughs> try to make sure your response isn't as large first but if uh, if i guess you can't get that down further um this might be this might be something of, of use uh, so martin's added uh, some sample responses into the into the show notes as well while we're speaking. Yeah, uh, I see. Okay, so a 103 comes back first as early hints, uh, which you can mm -hmm. then go and like preload some. Let's suggest some CSS and some JavaScript there, and then it uh, throws you back a, a 200, assuming uh, the main request is back. Comes back normally. Awesome. Yeah, so I think it's it's. it's it's pretty cool. Um, you know, anything that uh, I think it's true to say that the web is is getting slower and slower uh, over time. Um, I think a lot of us are privileged to be on decent broadbands with a with a modern processor and a and a modern um, you know modern browser. But the reality is that large parts of the world don't actually have that privilege. Um, and anything that can be done to help help speed up uh, their experience, I think, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally seeing that all the CDN links will go, if not all, many of the CDN, CDN links might show up here, not just style sheets and JavaScript, but maybe images as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I could, I could easily see that that prefetching from CDNs in particular would be, would be quite useful. And again, I think this is probably most useful for speeding up the first response time. Um, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, that's mm. a nice little idea. Yeah, just a nice little tip. Yeah. So a lot of the clients will now need some amendments, or how is this going to work? So I think it's meant to be optional. So I think clients can be amended to process this, or just to completely ignore it. Um, I think the default is to would be just to ignore it today, uh, because most clients ignore uh, HTTP, you know, any status code which isn't an official one. Um, so it should should be backwards compatible. Um, they're usually pretty careful about these things. Uh, yeah, otherwise the whole internet will break down. Or at least yep. the HTTP layer. But I imagine, you know, Apache and Nginx and others will, will very quickly start to support this. Um, and how some of the, say, Java web servers um, support this will, will be quite interesting as well, assuming you are serving up this type of pre-static content from your Java web server. Mm. Pro tip, don't do it. Try to load those types of things from an Apache or an Nginx or something along those lines. It's a lot faster. Has anyone has anyone ever implemented uh, HTTP? Is it four one eight? I think if we had a, a request about four one eight. What's HTTP four one eight? What is that? What you mean? You mean you don't know your HTTP status codes off by heart, aren't they? Not off by heart. No. Oh, the I'm a T bot. 
I'm a teapot, yeah. Good. It's right. amazing how that actually made this back. It's uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's it was it, it it literally is the code is I am a teapot. And from memory, I think uh, it was added as a code, as an error code for when you're trying to make coffee and you're putting coffee in a teapot, but it's it's an April Fool's HTTP status code, which was actually added as a as a, an official code. Um, but those who are trying to implement uh, um, HTTP servers or clients actually don't need to worry about it at all. It's an optional thing. Um, but it's just a very funny. So it's brilliant, isn't it? Because it's got 417 expectation failed, 418, I'm a teapot, <laughs> 421 <laughs> misdirected request. <laughs> but honestly, I'd never run across that one before. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's the other, other good one. If, Four five one unavailable for legal reasons. <laughs> oh, nice. um, I'm re I'm reading that someone asked that four one eight be removed. Oh, really? Programming language Go. Yeah, if you go onto the Wikipedia page, uh, at the bottom it says save four one eight movement, and I think that's where it's come from. I'm thinking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty pretty simple to implement. I mean, you just need to have yeah. a single response, which is. I am a teapot. But you don't actually even need to implement it. There's no, there's nothing mandating. What's that. the what's the yeah. usefulness of that? Yeah, there, there is, is no usefulness. <laughs> yes, so I was. Uh, I, I would love to be able to give you a use case for that, but I really, I genuinely can't. That said, it would be quite a useful. You know, people who are joining open source projects always say they want some low hanging fruit to to test or implement, and this would be a nice one yeah, to implement. Sure, you know, if you want to you make your first contribution to a new language. Yeah. Implementing for it's like it's like um, invoking on Easter egg. You know, I used to. I remember in the good old days of Windows. Uh, can't remember which. Uh, you could type in some letters, and then suddenly you would see the Star Wars uh, theme showing all the credits. Can't remember which application that was. Wasn't it um, Excel or something like that? Was it Excel? It might have been Excel or it's, or some Windows thing. Can't remember. Was it? Was it? Um, one of those solitaire games or something like that. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, there's actually a there's a there's a Wikipedia article which has a list of all Easter eggs in uh, Microsoft products, and there are quite a few. Mm. Uh, very cool. So Microsoft Excel, little Doom-like game, had a flight simulator in Excel in Office ninety seven. Yeah, I, yeah. Remember that. I remember playing the flight sim game. I I yeah. heard about it. I've never seen it in action. Oh yes, I know. This was in Delphi. You could uh, in the about box you could type something. I can't remember the exact words, and it would show all the credits of all those people who worked in making that editor. Wow, Jay was that Jay? No, it was by Borland Delphi. It was uh, 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 yeah, it was a desk Windows program. It wasn't yeah. wasn't even available on other operating systems. Wow. I think I used to use that when I was growing when I was uh, not growing up when I was in going through university. We used to use Ball and Delphi plus plus or something like that. It was called. Yeah, I see. I find it. I found it here. Delphi seven Easter eggs. I think that's a good one to look at. Uh, so so moving from Delphi, moving from Delphi to Java nine. Yeah, we've gone way off topic, haven't we? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's not forget we're being recorded here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Samir Tawa asks. Um, He'd love to hear more about JLink and what we can do with it. So JLink, for those who don't know, is um, a tool that was uh, added in Java 9 and allows you to um, 
I'll say compress or maybe not compress, but uh, certainly um, streamline the JDK image by um, by removing the modules that you don't require for your application to run, and it will provide you with a with a, a lightweight Java JDK image, which includes your application modules, and um, that new lightweight version, depending on what your application depends on, of course. That new lightweight version could be as little as maybe 40, 45 meg, um, which is massively important if you, I guess, you're running something that small on an IoT device or something with limited memory, limited resources, to have something which is 45 meg rather than, I guess, 400 or, or whatever, whatever the JDK is these days. Um, 200 maybe? Yeah, easily. Yeah, it's about 200 and it's growing slowly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's JLink is helping us create. Uh, or distributables for our applications uh, and bundles our applications in uh, bundles the JRE into the application that we build. And so, it also creates a run runnable for the application itself. So you no longer have to say, you can still say, you can no longer have to say Java space jar and the name of your jar or whatever. You can just say so-and-so folder slash the name of your application and it does that internally. But 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 realistically, what what's, what's the real benefit going to be? Because I mean, I mean, we, we're all used to typing Java Java minus Java, and that's no that's no big problem. I mean, what what what's JLink going to offer us? I mean, for the majority of people who aren't running on an IoT device, aren't running on a limited resource device, how how is it going to help us? So it helps us hugely. So at JClarity, um, we're we're definitely going to move to it because it will allow us to bundle in a cut down version of the Java 9 JRE uh, into the daemon which we install on each of our customers hosts okay um, so it reduces the size of um, sorry it allows us to set this the standard to be Java 9 across and, and as opposed to relying on the JRE that the customer is supplying so we don't have to we no longer have to support everything from Java 6 all the way through up to 9 which is incredibly useful uh, we're completely isolated from the customers JVM so we're effectively providing our own um, but we're providing our own very small cut-down version. So the amount of resources that our daemon requires to start up and run will actually be smaller than what it was previously uh, as well. So those two things combined for us uh, will, will make this you know, an extremely useful tool. Resources from the point of view of a um, of what a customer is going to be the resources that a customer is going to actually be using to run their application. Uh, yeah. So if we're using Maybe. an existing JRE that's on on a system, um, you do make some savings by by sharing some of the system libraries and things. Uh, but in effect, you're firing up uh, an, you know another entire copy of of that older type of JVM, right, which fires up everything. So mm -hmm. the typical hello world, which takes up way too much memory and mm -hmm. and way too much boot time. Uh, but because JLink can allow you to have a cut-down version of the JRE, it means you can have a much smaller JVM startup, basically, which is isolated just to your application alone. Yeah, and I guess if you were to take that further, and if you, I mean, if you were to want to scale to have many, many JVMs on your running app, running servers, um, yeah, you, you'd be able to you'd be able to massively increase your what you uh, what you can fit on a server. That, that's right. That's assuming the application you're running um, is is able to run on a reduced subset of of the JVM, uh, which I think quite often would be the case, even if it does require a little bit of application code modification or reduction of a few dependencies. Um, yeah, I mean we've got customers who love packing in, for example, you know, 
10, 15, 20 instances of Tomcat on a single piece of big iron. Mm. Um, and they could, they, and assuming they still want to go with that deployment tactic, which I appreciate is counter to the the, the popular new horizontally scaling way of doing things. Um, you know, this again would help them. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of drawbacks here, though. Uh, one of them is I don't know if this has been updated yet. Is so far I know is uh, that JLink will only produce a specific platform distributable. So you'll have to build one per platform on that platform. Well, that's not actually true. Um, Although that's, yeah, yeah, you can cross-platform compile it, but you'll have to do it on your own. No, it's I mean, what, what, you, no, you could, what you could actually do is, and I was talking with, is it Alex Buckley from Oracle about this? Uh-huh. Um, and because we, we recently had a Java, champ, Java Champion Summit just before Java 1 where you have a room full of Java champions, all talking about Java, all talking about the future of Java. One of the topics we came, we talked about was, wouldn't it be, you know, what, what's the point of having something like JLink if you can't produce binaries that will run on every system? Mm -hmm. And I read a book, um, Java 9 Modules, by Sander Mack and Paul Backer, and I assumed that this was something that is not supported necessarily, but something which Oracle... Uh, did on purpose, um, but it looks like it's maybe a side effect. Um, if you and I, I have no, do you have I tried this? No, maybe I haven't tried this, but I know Sander has. Um, if you download uh, a JVM, a JRE, sorry, and you unzip that JRE onto your, so let's say I'm on a, I'm on a Mac. Let's mm -hmm. say I grab a Windows JRE, Windows binary, and I unzip that onto my Mac. If I use JLink and point it to that um, to the location where I unzip that Windows JRE, it will produce me a image, um, a, a Windows JRE image uh, that will bundle up my application, which I you know will have developed on my Mac because it's effectively just just interpreted code at that point, right? It'll bundle me, it'll, so it'll it'll realize which modules I need from the Windows JRE. It'll bundle that and produce me a Windows uh, platform runnable uh, image with my application. Um, so, like I say, you know, it, it's not something that the Oracle guys maybe intended, but it's something which was mentioned in that book, and I believe you can do. Uh, certainly worth testing. <laughs> yeah, um, so that that was what I was mentioning. So, yeah, I see in the JLink uh, options, you see, you say module path, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And you can make the module path point to the JDK modules of any. Right any of the platforms, but, yeah, it, but it's uh, not out of the box. That's what I meant to say. It is not out of the box, yeah. that's right. And it so, can't be out of the box, it makes sense. But at the same time, the J-Link that you'll by default produce will only work on the platform you've, sorry, the J-Link you'll use to create your distributable for by default will well, only that's work good. on the platform if you have produced it on. Well, by the, the only thing there is that the key question, the key point there you say is by default, and and the reason that is is because that's not anything to do with JLink. That's because by default you typically will only have a JRE or a JDK, of, of, you know, or, or, which is running on your platform, local to your platform. Sure. Um, if, if you had a build engine. Uh, which had all the different distributions which you're running in production, or sorry, all the different platforms that you're running in production, all the all the different JVMs at the right version for sure. those platforms. You could quite easily invoke JLink several times, which will produce you uh, images of each of those platforms. 
Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think that makes sense. It's something to try out. Maybe something I'll go go back and try out. But it's mm. it's a good one. Good, it's a good finding. So yeah, just we just point, because those binaries are even though because they're compiled in that on that platform, you can still bundle it up. Yeah. So, so you can a good, test, a good test will be to run those applications as well on those platforms. Mm. Oh yeah. So this Java nine is also actually a Java packager tool as well. Um, I'm not 100% sure if it's part of OpenJDK or Oracle's JDK, but that will all be one and the same thing shortly anyway, even if it isn't. Uh, and with the JPackager tool, you can very easily create images for all of the major uh, operating systems, including Linux, Windows, and Mac. Um, oh, is it called the Java Packager? It is called the Java Packager, and it will create, uh, you know, you can give it options to create uh, MSI installer for Windows, uh, a DMG or a PKG for Mac, um, RPM or Debian. It can even create packages for the Mac App Store, uh, so on and so forth. So I, I suspect what people will do is they'll use JLink to build the base thing, and then they'll use Java Packager in their CI or CD pipeline if they do need to deploy to multiple operating systems, which we actually do. So this is something that we will be looking at, um, and uh, we'll, we'll go forward to that so I think Oracle's actually done quite a good job in already providing some of these sort of free tools where previously you'd have to use you know install for J or, or some other um, yeah FPM you know, and, and FPM. all the separate tools to, to build them up I see there's uh, things for signing as well and certificates so sign your jar there's there's options for that plus you can bundle certificates with it so yeah, that's right. So for people who aren't aware of, of this, this issue, um, quite commonly, especially on, on Mac or Windows, um, you can no longer just go and install uh, an MSI or a package or a DMG um, unless that particular package has been got a code signed certificate from an appropriate certificate authority, um, you know, co-jointly either with Microsoft or, or the app, app Store and Apple, that sort of thing. So it's good to see that they've supported that out of the box. Yeah, this is a good one. That's cool. I didn't realize about that Java packager. That was, uh, that was good to know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, as well. Well, that's not available on Oracle Solaris. Interestingly, not, no, but I don't think that's going to be a huge problem for many people. No. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know of any. So we have a few customers on Solaris, but they're all planning to migrate off. Yeah. Understandable given recent news, I guess. Yes. But by the way, going back to the J link. Uh, there's also an option there uh, to further reduce the default size of the distributor that you create by removing the the manual files and all the other files. Plus, there's a compression option as well, which goes all the way from zero to to one or, or zero to two. Zero. What is the compress? Uh, there's zero is no compress. Uh, let me load up the options again. Uh, two is, is uh, a zip. A gzip like compress. Okay. And one is a constant string sharing. Okay. So I don't know what it does with that. Okay. Uh, maybe it just makes it use up use common files or common. Yeah. No, don't no need to look into that. Okay. Yeah. So again, a lot of people probably might naively think that's not very useful, uh, but if you're in the game of having to distribute your mini Java application, again, something that, that we ourselves would do across tens, hundreds, if not thousands of, of instances, uh, or in our, yeah, in our case, definitely thousands at the moment, creeping towards tens of thousands, um, then you know, having the smallest package possible um, so you're not doing any harm to uh, your client's network um, in particular, um, and you're not doing 
you know, your, your network bill is also reduced, and especially if you're on a cloud provider, your, your networking is actually pretty poor, typically. Um, again, these are all quite useful things to have. Yeah. Uh, one other tweet I saw from Josh Long, actually, um, was around Spring Boot, and uh, he he mentioned he actually said so. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a if this is a plan of pivotals or not. I'm sure it was just a tweet of uh, just thinking out loud. Um, but the, con considering having uh, a fat jar that actually does everything, so a fat jar that has not just your application and your Tomcat container or, or Jetty container, but then also the JDK which runs it. Um, that would be that would be amazing. Because then you know what are your <laughs> what are your prerequisites then? Just to essentially run this on a certain platform, right? You pretty much have everything you need in order to deploy, um, and it's just uh, it just turns into this this runnable image. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's, I, that's, I think that's, I think a lot of people are going to do that. I think that's a really a really interesting thing, and and obviously, you know, it, it, everyone would when they build their spring build spring uh, boot applications or or whatever application you're building. Uh, it would it would then just as part of that build just create the the right it will create the JDK depending on what your application needs provide you with this really nice small well I say small probably less than 100 meg application with everything else that you've got in it um, and uh, it's self deployable it sounds amazing and and it runs on all the platforms well no I mean that that would well, when you build that it would it would still be it would still run on the platform that you that you point your yeah. Point your JDK, point your uh, JLink to the JDK too. I think. I mean, one thing would be interesting because um, it's now good to bundle the JREs into the application. But if you notice, then after a while, <clears throat> and this is again debatable, is you might have applications that now have bundled the same JRE, and several applications are having the same JRE or the same modules in the in the in the in the distributable. Rather, would it not then be interesting to have like a central place where you can put these modules and then you only bundle those modules in your those jdk modules in your distributable that is different or in addition to the modules that already are there in the base modules i mean i don't know if you're going back to a square one with that but there's a little bit of duplication otherwise if, if you see then if you see where i'm coming from with the bloating up of the yeah Mutables after a while because yeah. everybody's going to be using it. Yeah, it's a trade-off between uh, amount of resource used up on disk and amount of resource, uh, perhaps a little bit of shared resource in terms of, of memory and, and memory. native yeah. native and native library loading, etc. Um, and you're weighing that up against against isolation, right? So you could deploy five JLinked applications to a single host and decide that two of them you want to update them from Java nine to Java nine point zero one. Right. Yeah, and and you could do that easily because they're isolated. Whereas if you needed to do that in a in a single shared place, then all of a sudden again you're going back to the world where you're impacting all five of those applications. So yeah. it's really it's that it's that trade off. But then yeah. let's say you have let's say you have a hundred applications, and all of a sudden you want to upgrade your JDK across all of them. Then all of a sudden you have to rebuild every single application in order to change the JDK. Um, I think I think but, it's a case of what's most important to you, right? Yeah, I mean, in the container world, you would then, in your next release, in through a blue-green deployment or through Canary, you would then kick off the new images, which has got the new update, and then it'll slowly replace the old ones, isn't it? Isn't that how would it, 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 it might work? Yeah, that's true. 
yeah, it's certainly automatable or using manager. Yeah, it, it's something I was talking with John Oliver, who who works with you, uh, Matan, yes. Jay Clark. Uh, we were saying that uh, wouldn't it be that we strike something where we actually only bundle the JDK modules and your own modules, and then you have like a common JRE that all your applications are referring to, in a in an in an instance where you won't have too much heterogeneous combinations of uh, JRE JDK versioning, so that would kind of help. I'm not sure if it would also help in memory you know, footstamp, but disk space and memory footstamp in com combination. I don't think does it does anyone re unless you're on a limited uh, footprint for for disk. I don't think anyone really cares too much about disk. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well, uh, more than disk, it's the download download uh, the well the bandwidth, isn't it? So if you have a big bloated thing that you need to download every time, yeah, but I mean, you have a bloated. If you're trying to, yeah, if you're trying to download like lots of applications at once, then yeah. Um, but I'm not. I don't know if that's really a use case. Maybe. Um, but I mean, disk is cheap, right? So I don't think people are going to care. Yeah, too much. it's not. It's not so much disk. I would think more network bandwidth or yeah. you know, copying across or loading up into memory and things like that. I mean, take it, right? If the file is smaller, it'll load up quicker than if the file is bigger. But again, if, if the environment is doing optimization when it's loading up the application, then the file size wouldn't really matter so much. Mm. Well, we've pretty much reached 30 minutes already. Um, and we've oh. only just scratched some of the things that we've been asked about. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll jump back on this in a couple of weeks. Um, if anyone does have any other questions to ask um, any of their panelists on on the Java Council, uh, please yeah, please do go to the Java Council podcast Slack group, and uh, there is a there is a, a running editable document there that um, people can ask their questions directly in, and we'll answer them on the next uh, or we'll answer them in the future at some point, depending on when we get around to it. Um, maybe we won't be able to give an answer, but we can certainly discuss about discuss. Uh, the question and uh, and maybe come to some kind of conclusion but uh, yeah thanks everyone for listening big thank you to Manny uh, big thank you to Martin for joining you're welcome, uh, you're welcome. we'll see you all next week cool well, see you yeah. Bye. Bye.